With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to TNT, today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for joining us here on Wednesday. It's great to have you with us. We have a very, very powerful broadcast for you uh, today. Uh, very pleased and privileged to welcome in the second hour a very special guest, Israeli-American activist, peace advocate, Miko Pellet is going to join us in the second hour. That's going to be a very important conversation. We're going to be talking about, obviously, what's happening in Gaza right now and the future of Palestine, the future of the clash between the Israeli state uh, and the native Palestinian population. We're going to talk about that with, I think, one of the most prominent voices uh, in recent years, Miko Pellet, uh, fantastic uh, author, speaker. Uh, we're pleased to have him on the show. We'll be connecting him in the second hour. He's also on Piers Morgan at the moment as we speak. So we'll be able to get live reactions from uh, Miko about what it was like uh, to be in the hot seat there with Piers Morgan. So that's going to be kind of an interesting one. Interesting dynamic uh, there as well. So, But uh, also in the first hour, uh, we're going to be joined by Freddie Ponton. Uh, we've gotten him on uh, just off stage at the moment. We will cut to Freddie uh, for maybe a comment on this breaking story. But uh, I want I want to get into the top sort of global news story right now, and that's there is a downed plane. Uh, and this isn't just any downed plane. It's a downed Russian plane. Interesting. In the region of Belgorod, right on the Ukrainian-Russian border, uh, as you know, Ukraine has launched all sorts of attacks, uh, hitting civilians uh, in Belgorod. Russia is calling these terrorist attacks by Kiev. Certainly, they're desperate, to say the least. But anyway, uh, what's happened here, a Russian plane carrying Ukrainian POWs, Ukrainian POWs on a Russian plane has been shot down according to the Russian MOD on this. They're claiming that the Ukrainians, uh, the regime in Kiev has shot down this Russian plane carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war, crashed on Wednesday, that'll be this morning, Moscow time, uh, killing everybody on board, including the pilots. And he, they believe that Kiev, the Zelensky regime, I use the term regime because they seem to have earned it uh, with the state of society right now uh, in Ukraine, completely suspending freedom of speech, elections, uh, democracy, freedom of religion, and all that's been suspended. So we will call it a regime, just a caveat there. Uh, Russia is saying they did this intentionally in order to pin uh, an attack on Moscow and to inflame the situation between the two countries uh, and the defense ministry as well in Moscow says that uh, Kiev has once again shown its true colors. There are also those that believe, I tend to veer towards this explanation, uh, that there were people on board that plane uh, that the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government wanted dead. Uh, because uh, this is not a coincidence that this has happened. Um, so is it a case that they don't want these prisoners of war to be speaking in public, or do they have some information, some intelligence uh, that Kiev uh, would be would, would want to suppress and would be inconvenient 
for uh, a really desperate Zelensky regime at the moment. And I think NATO is pretty desperate. So is Zelensky. Uh, so this is an interesting breaking story here. They're calling it an act of terrorism. Uh, it is disturbing because, you know, just just as well, this could have been a passenger airliner. But isn't this interesting? Ukraine shooting down a plane and blaming it on Russia. And I brought up this possibility, as did many others, back in July 2014 with the downing of flight MH17, Malaysia Airlines. And many of us at the time and continue to be derided as conspiracy theorists for even suggesting such a thing. How dare we go against the uh, online virtual findings of Bellingcat, for instance. Uh, how dare we go against the mainstream media and the whole machine. I even got... Uh, I even got attacked by a CNN anchor on Twitter uh, for this very story. He called me an MH17 conspiracy theorist. But uh, looking at this story here, you can see it's pretty plausible, in fact, that this is the case. So uh, more details are going to come out on this, uh, but it looks like anti-aircraft missiles, Ukrainian air defenses, uh, were stationed in the Kharkiv region. Uh, and looks like two missiles were launched, according to the Russian MOD. So this is interesting. It, uh, it opens up a lot of problems as well in terms of the safety of air travel within Russian airspace. And more than likely, this is going to trigger uh, a massive retaliation by the Russian Federation, by their MOD uh, against uh, military targets in Ukraine. That goes without a doubt. Every single time we've seen this pattern, there have been these attacks, be they asymmetric uh, Kurt Strait Bridge, for instance, uh, the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol and Crimea. Uh, anytime these were attacked or Russian naval assets or other attacks in Belgrade, there's been a retaliation by the Russian Federation. And it's been swift and it's been a hard. Uh, and I think you're probably going to see that here. There have been recent uh, Russian moves uh, to neutralize uh, military targets, according to their press releases, uh, in the Kharkiv region, also in Odessa. These are two mainly uh, Russian uh, ethnic regions, uh, and by language, ethnicity, identifying as Russian. So Kharkiv and Odessa. Uh, many believe that in the coming months, we're going to see serious moves by the Russian Federation to perhaps uh, what they would consider liberating uh, these territories, uh, as they have done in her son, uh, Zaporizhia, and also the Donbass regions of Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, which actually have been fairly autonomous since 2014 after the Maidan Beer Hall Putsch. So that's the story, folks. Uh, and We'll be tracking this fairly closely. Uh, actually, if we, if we are able to, let's bring, uh, we believe we have Freddie Ponton, our guest, uh, who's just off stage. Let's bring him onto the call, if we can, uh, to comment on this. We'll also be breaking uh, in a few minutes with the network and coming back. But uh, yeah, if we do have Freddie, uh, welcome to the program. Freddie Ponton, independent journalist and researcher, also contributor at 21stCenturyWire.com. Thanks for joining us, Freddie. It's a pleasure. Good to be here, Patrick. Great, uh, great, to be great news. I mean, I was listening to, uh, to this breaking news because it's really uh, uh, still developing. But uh, I, indeed, it's, uh, it's very interesting to see how, depending on where you read the news, uh, what kind of story you get. And so it uh, seems to be uh, uh, the usual 
uh, spin of the story. But what's really interesting, and that has not really been uh, said, is that there was actually a second uh, plane that was also aiding towards this prisoner exchange, because it was a prisoner exchange. And these prisoner exchanges have been taking place since the, the beginning of the conflict, so it's nothing new. Uh, what's interesting here is the use of uh, commercial transport. So there's no uh, kind of a military uh, jet fighter flight, you know, flying alongside the plane. This is a purely a, a direct agreement at the highest level in order to exchange prisoners. So this should have gone really smoothly. Uh, the story on the Ukrainian side is not making a lot of sense because they say they were worried that the military, the Russian military, were carrying. Uh, S-300 missiles, which, you know, unlikely will make it to a, a commercial airplane. And especially because the time, the dates and the locations was agreed upon. And there was two exchanges that needed to that needed to be take place and that were agreed upon. So we know the second uh, Russian 276 transport turned back and then uh, uh, avoided, obviously, to be struck. But uh, it's quite clear that this plane has been taken down. It's been taken down by the Ukrainians. Uh, what is the reason? What is the, the political uh, gain, the military gain? I'm not quite sure about that, but clearly this is a bad news for, uh, for future exchange. So it's not working for Ukraine, and clearly someone is trying to sabotage the idea of uh, prisoner exchange at this stage. So it's, uh, it's developing, and we need obviously to get more intelligence to, to, to try to find out really what's going on here, because it's quite serious, and uh, a lot of people are going to get upset. I mean, the least of those on board was already kind of issued on the on the uh, on the russian media so they have the birth, birth date and so on so we know exactly who these people are uh so uh, i guess the family are not going to be too happy about that so 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 freddie we can kind of rule out that this was uh th this was not a coincidence in other words uh, both sides uh, had knowledge of what was going on. So it's, you know, to say this was a, a missed signal or some confusion, it's highly unlikely, isn't it? It's unlikely. And already in the press, you can read that the Russians have already kind of identified the manufacturers of these missiles, you know, saying they come from the US and Germany. So uh, this is not, you know, this, these are NATO weaponries provided to Ukraine. So whether it comes from NATO, at that it, you know, NATO outside of Ukraine trying to do something so silly. Uh, so I think it's uh, really inside, really, the Ukrainian government. We, we know there's a lot of turmoil uh, at the moment between the, the, the defense and Zulozhny and, and all, all this, you know, kind of a power struggle at the moment with uh, uh, the US and uh, NATO Europe trying to reinvigorate this uh, this war effort, you know, because they just simply cannot accept uh, uh, the, uh, the the defeat, which is quite apparent to most of the military experts and those on the ground. So I think it's part of that struggle. I think it's uh, uh, something internal, uh, from what I could say initially, but uh, clearly not a mistake to sabotage at this stage. Yeah, and uh, Russia is accusing Ukraine of trying to stage a false flag attack, saying that, uh, they quote, nevertheless, the Nazi uh, Kiev regime carried out this attack in a bid to accuse 
Russia killing members of the Ukrainian military by committing this terrorist act. The Ukrainian leadership showed its true face disregarding lives of its own citizens. So like maybe one of those outrageous stories that play in the West, the West love the incomparable, impossible story that doesn't make any sense. And then they would pin it on Putin and they would say, well, of course, Putin did this. It doesn't make sense, but he's a he's a crazy dictator. And that's what crazy dictators do. They do crazy things. That's basically how it plays out in the you know world of CNN, uh, the BBC and so forth. So that's uh, that's what they're saying, Freddie. So uh, we we will watch this and hopefully glean some more details from this. Uh, we're going to be covering uh, more breaking news out of Ukraine with Freddie Ponton, our guest uh, during this hour. In the meantime, we're going to break here with TNT, today's news talk. And when we come back, we're going to uncover, we're going to expose French mercenaries in Ukraine and in Gaza. What is France up to and why are they playing such a big role in injecting some of these foreign fighters into these theaters of war? It's a scandal that's brewing in France right now. We'll talk about it with Freddie. All this and more on the other side. Stay right there. TNT's Kate Shimarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally, 100% heal itself if you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs. What do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special, special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just going to serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee, fluoridated, chlorinated, bromine, water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shimarani on today's News Talk TNT. Chief Division Counsel and DOJ have approved a no-knock breach. We want the subject to be on display, doing the walk of shame, full visual impact. Any questions? Are we becoming a police state? Government told American citizens they couldn't go to church on Sunday. For the first time in my life, I'm saying to myself, am I going to get a knock at the door? FBI warrant, come to the door now! The Patriot Act and FISA were used against Donald Trump. These individuals have commissioned the biggest propaganda play in U.S. history. They don't go after the people that rigged the election. They go after the people that want to find out what the hell happened. We don't need to have a crime. What we need is a person to look at, and then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is gonna be domestic terrorism. It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with. We can do anything we want. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. Turn it up. Yeah. TNT.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. We're still in our number one, this live broadcast. Patrick Henningsen, your host here. This is TNT, today's news talk. And uh, before the break, uh, we're covering this uh, incredible story out of the Ukraine with a downed Russian airliner carrying Ukrainian POWs. Um, very strange story. Uh, we got some great commentary, uh, however, from Freddie Ponton on this. Thanks for the details. We'll bring Freddie back up onto the stage. Freddie is an independent journalist and researcher. He's also a contributor at 21stCenturyWire.com. Check out his archive there at the website. Just type Freddie Ponton into the search bar. You'll see all of his articles and interviews. There's a lot to digest there. Freddie, welcome back to the program. Now, the story that uh, I want to focus on uh, during this hour is one that you've been looking into very closely. Obviously, this is an extreme area of interest for you, uh, being from the part of the world that you're from. You're very concerned about your country's involvement in in the Ukraine conflict, you have been from the beginning, you've been very outspoken and very critical of Emmanuel Macron, of France's role in NATO uh, throughout the duration of this conflict. And recently, uh, some very disturbing news has come to light. Um, just the scale of uh, French uh, fighters, French mercenaries uh, in Ukraine, some of them uh, unfortunately uh, met an untimely demise, it seems, last week, but also they're also showing up in Israel, in Gaza, with the IDF's invasion, ground invasion into the Gaza Strip. Um, let's start with Ukraine. Tell us about what happened, because this is quite a, this is quite a serious story, Freddie. Uh, uh, people are basically saying that a hotel was hit in a Russian missile strike. Um, contain quite a few French mercenaries. There's also reports of suffering large number of casualties uh, in the field. Many are dying. Um, and the government's kind of wanting to wash its hands of all this uh, in France. There's more going on here, Freddie, but this has been going on for a while. Uh, let, let Give us some insight on, on this latest breaking story, and let's put it into perspective, Freddie. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a, it's a developing uh, story still, Patrick, but very interesting indeed. Last week, I think it's on the 16th of January, last Tuesday, we, we saw basically a, a, a hotel in, in Kharkov, which is the northern eastern parts of Ukraine. And uh, it seems that the, the Russians have conducted a, a very uh, precision strike on a, uh, a multi-store building uh, in a residential area. So they were very precise about who they were looking for, who they were targeting. And uh, very quickly on Wednesday, they declared that they've uh, striked this building uh, on, on the strength that uh, uh, they were harboring mercenaries, mercenaries from France and other countries, but mainly from France, from the report. Uh, we saw the Kiev uh, government reporting that two Russian missiles struck actually the building in this residential area. Uh, basically, the, 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 the casualties were reported as 60 uh, people killed and uh, 17 people injured with two people uh, in bad condition in hospital at this moment in time. So, of course, when it first came out last week, we started to try to, to look into the information and the intelligence that is already available because this is something that uh, the Russians have been looking at for a very long time. But not only the Russians, uh, many investigative journalists have looked into the presence of mercenaries in Ukraine, not since the 2022, but actually since 2020, even earlier in 2018. So we can clearly see that there, there has been a, a concerted uh, effort uh, from NATO member states and NATO Supreme Allied Commands in Europe uh, to uh, 
in, in the eve of the conflict, at least two or three years ahead of that particular time, uh, we saw that uh, a lot of military intelligence activities was taking place in Ukraine, mainly in Kiev, in Kharkov and other areas with the setting up of NATO command posts, which were undeclared, of course, at the time. So there was a lot of uh, IRS uh, going on, intelligence research and uh, surveillance operation conducted, uh, especially out of Kiev. And we saw, obviously, uh, at the time, reports coming out of uh, investigative journalists like Warren Thornton and others as well, reporting on the French intelligence and military uh, intelligence being in Kiev, uh, coordinating, meeting with mercenaries. Uh, these guys were spending literally months after months in Kiev renting apartments, uh, and all that's been very well documented. Uh, a lot of information came out of different embassies, uh, including um, embassies in Poland, Germany, and, and, and Georgia, So, and Ukraine probably as well. So I believe uh, a lot of people were uh, able to already identify these connections in between military intelligence for the French, that will be the DRM, the Département des Renseignements Militaires, uh, which is the Directorate for Military Intelligence. This is directly attached to the chief, a Joint Chief of Staff at the highest level within the military. On the top, you have the Minister of Defense. And we know from uh, people that look into NATO and understand the, the NATO construct that uh, most of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, military intelligence have a direct line with NATO Supreme Aligned Command in Europe. So it's quite fair to uh, assume that uh, prior to the war in Ukraine, NATO and its military forces in Germany, in France, in Italy, in, uh, in the UK would have concerted and coordinated their efforts to make sure that they could bring to the ground ahead of the conflict uh, the right set of skills, if you will. So from cyber warfare to uh, people really specialize in, for example, medical training, uh, transportations for exfiltrations, because obviously nobody is supposed to be there, whether they're mercenaries, whether they're citizen, any French, any uh, English, any British, any Italian or German, uh, which uh, is including in a military operation alongside the Ukraine armed forces shouldn't be there by law. And I think the Russian government has been very clear as far as how these people will be treated. Uh, and uh, I think this is really the, uh, uh, an operation conducted by the Russian, which was available probably to them a long time ago, but it probably set on it, uh, hoping that maybe this conflict will come to uh, an end earlier and they wouldn't have to do that. But it seems that this conflict is dragging and the rhetoric coming out of uh, France is definitely displeasing the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia. And I think they, they wanted to send a very clear message that they were taking this extremely seriously and that this French citizen, mercenary, volunteer, doesn't matter how you call it, from the moment they're involved in military operation, they are a legitimate target. And I think the Russia wanted to make a very serious point that they know what's going on in Kiev, they know what's going on in Kharkiv, and they've been keeping track of all this military intelligence operation. And just to be clear, Freddie, uh, mercenaries or, you know, quote, volunteers, soldiers of fortune, they're not covered under the Geneva Convention. So, uh, as you said, uh, they're kind of fair game. They're not really protected by anything. They're not supposed to be there. Their presence is illegal uh, as as deemed by international law and conventions. Um, but what we saw, it was interesting, Freddie, you remember back in the spring 
of 2022 in the early months of the uh, Ukrainian conflict here. And there were reports of French uh, foreign legion members, obviously not in legionnaire uniforms, uh, but uh, going in under the guise or under the aegis of the Ukrainian uh, volunteer army or whatever, and were exposed. The patches were shown uh, as they evacuated uh, some of their accommodations, as it were, uh, in Mariupol. And then the Azovstal plant, Macron was freaking out. Do you remember that? He was saying, making, ready to make deals, wanting to send in helicopters. There were clearly French personnel special forces or whatever underneath Azovstal. And I think they managed to exfiltrate a few of those, but some helicopters were shot down trying to flee Freddie. And, and there was never really any comment about who was on those helicopters. Um, so this is interesting, Freddie. I mean, so this isn't a new issue at all. Uh, France seems to be deeply, deeply involved uh, in this subterfuge from the beginning. Yes, absolutely. As I say, you know, every story, especially the, the one of the French mercenary being taken down in Kharkiv, needs to be brought into a context and a wider context, a context of a NATO operation that has been taking place at least uh, the earliest we can uh, find is 2018. But really, we can see the accelerations in 2020 with a lot of military intelligence moving into Ukraine, uh, directly managed with the defense attaché from the embassies, and they start to coordinate and making contact on the ground. So they, they're there to basically uh, uh, meet the intelligence community, but also meet the mercenary, the, uh, the corporate side of it, or even the private uh, military uh, uh, outfits out of Europe and other countries as well. So they, they're gathering intelligence, they're preparing themselves. So on one side, you get... Uh, uh, Merkel and, and, and Macron's, you know, working on the Minsk agreement. On the other side, the decisions have already, already been made from NATO uh, that uh, the, this conflict is going to take place. And it's really about to, to bring uh, the set of skills, the training, the intelligence, the cyber warfare capacities and capabilities, uh, you know, so that Ukraine can have all the chances on its side for, for this upcoming fight. So this provocation uh, against the Russian uh, is uh, is very kind of embedded in, in this understanding. And then if you take it from, from, from this point of view, then you can assess, obviously, uh, the, the various way NATO would have operated. And what you're referring to is simply basically a, a NATO command post that was taken down. Uh, they, only, they don't have only one in Kiev. They, they, from the internal report that we can gather, we, we understand that there were multiple NATO command post in, in Ukraine. And this operation, which I believe took place around May the 9th uh, in 2022, uh, was basically involving a, a lot of these uh, military intelligence people, uh, US, French, UK, and those were basically hiding in the basements uh, and so they were taken out. So I think Russia is extremely prepared, have a great, definitely a best to none intelligence network and capability to, 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 to get and to identify targets, legitimate targets as far as they're concerned. So NATO should not be there. Any French military, paramilitary, only citizens, you know, are representing their countries on the battlefield is a legitimate target. So in France, it's illegal. We're not allowed to go and fight uh, as a French citizen on a, for, for, 
find other countries or representing or being embedded in some, in some, some another country's uh, armed forces. It's absolutely legal. This is a, actually a, a debate that was brought to the, the parliament in France last year where parliamentaries were asking the government to start to look into these mercenaries or these uh, uh, former military or a Nazi group as well from France, you know, uh, heading towards Ukraine and being part of the uh, joining the Azov and 93 battalions and so on. So we, we, that intelligence is available. It's been uh, it's been analyzed al already, and it's quite clear. It's very hard for the French government to deny that because, of course, the social media is providing a, a lot of information, and many of these clans are basically uh, not afraid to you know to show themselves and. Uh, uh, on Telegram posts and, and so on, boasting about what they, they do or what they're about to do. But at the early part of the conflict, Patrick, it's important to understand that a lot of these fighters, some of them were killed uh, on the ground and exfiltrated. But uh, what you're seeing at the moment, really, these are real skilled uh, soldiers or former soldiers or former foreign French legions, which have basically... Uh, that are, they are rotating uh, in Ukraine to provide a set of skills because some of the equipment that comes required, obviously, people that have experience on the ground to use these weapons and trains, obviously, are various officers uh, within the, the Ukraine armed forces. So this is very technical. This is very skills-based. And these are rarely people that go on the front line. Uh, they did in the first place, not anymore. I think these are people that are embedded uh, in order to pass on the know-how and the knowledge, the skill, uh, and, and then the, the skill set. So that's what we are saying. But uh, really, I want to make the point, Patrick, that, as I said, this is part of a coordinating effort from NATO. It is a part of a coordinating uh, effort from certain member states like France, like Germany and other countries, which basically have been back and forth in Kiev. We saw them, they were reported to be in Poland, in, even in Russia, in St. Petersburg. They were reported to be in Georgia, uh, training some Georgian special forces and so on. So uh, this has been an ongoing effort. So to deny that, because the French position, as you know, is pretty much a, a full denial about French presence uh, uh, alongside the Ukrainian armed forces. And uh, that creates just unnecessary tensions. And I think that are the, the Russian government did what they had to do to send a very strong message out there. Yeah, and just to be clear, some of the weapons that uh, uh, France is providing uh, to Ukraine, you've reported on this extensively, by the way, Freddie. You've, uh, you're one of the first people to really extensively expose uh, the use of depleted uranium uh, in some of the French weaponry that's been sent uh, to Ukraine. But the French Mistral uh, uh, shoulder-based or ground-based portable missile system, uh, and also the French are, uh, can can operate and do instruction on U.S. Javelin missiles as well, because France has uh, procured a lot of these from the United States and then shipped them to Ukraine. Uh, so the French forces are well-versed in the U.S. Javelin technology as well. So um, that's mm. interesting. There's a lot of French weaponry uh, that has been mixed in there uh, among the deliveries over the last two years. Well, we saw Macron's uh, last speech uh, with regards to uh, sending more aid to Ukraine was very clear about the kind of equipments. And I only tell you half of the story, of course, they're not going to tell you the whole story, but we know it, he's planning to send. So when he says planning, that's mean 
this kind of material has already reached Ukraine. They'll never tell you we're planning to do that. That's just not the way it works. When you announce it, that's meant it's already on the ground. So we know that about 40 scalp long-range missiles have made it to Ukraine. He's talking about Caesar, you know, heavy artillery, and he's talking mm. about a lot of shells and a lot of bombs as well available. So that's going to be a rotating on a monthly basis. Uh, but clearly, I think what we are seeing is UK and, and Germany and, and France and Italy is really kind of a, now going back at procuring more support so that Ukraine can achieve its goal. And one of the primary goals of the Ukrainian uh, defense uh, and the armed forces is to take control of the sky. So I think we're going to see a, a, a lot of kind of missiles and anything that is uh, basically uh, ground air uh, missile capabilities, you know, to, to be able, as I said, to, uh, to take on helicopters, planes, whatever comes out of the skies, drones, of course. Uh, and we're going to see an increase in, in that particular uh, uh, areas of defense. And then uh, Macron's are also kind of already in the French press announced and really busted about, you know, the fact that our manufacturers or our defense contractors needed to uh, scale up their manufacturing operation because he, he wants really more material to, to support uh, this uh, new wave of, uh, of, uh, of counterattack, I suppose, from Ukraine because Ukraine has lost now, again, territories and Ukraine is uh, in a kind of a defensive positions, but uh, it's really not looking good. I mean, from a military analysis point of view, uh, it looked like we're trying to save a war that has already been lost on the ground. So I don't know what they're going to come up with, but it's really not looking good. It looks, for me, from my own analysis, it's looking like they are buying time. They are buying time because they want to drag on this conflict, more money to be poured into Ukraine. But from a military point of view, uh, as I said it and in other interviews that, that I've given on RT recently, is that more we wait, and more casualties is going to come, more people will die, more territories will be lost. And at the end of the day, this conflict will eventually end up at the negotiation table. But less territory, more people have died in between. And more importantly, you're going to have real very little say in the negotiation table because it, it is the winner normally that kind of enforce uh, the terms of the negotiations. Uh, so nothing is making sense what's coming out of Europe at the moment. They're acting like they are in charge and they can decide what's going to be the outcome of the war when clearly this decision is no longer in their hand. No, absolutely. Absolutely. They've shoved Ukraine into a NATO meat grinder. Uh, it doesn't look like there's any way out. Uh, Freddie, um, you know, I want to also talk about the uh, emergence of French mercenaries uh, fighting for the IDF. Initial reports are in the early days that uh, they were some of the first ones they sent in and among the first casualties, which, of course, Israel doesn't declare because they weren't Israeli citizens. They were mercenaries, most of them French. And then we see viral videos recently of a crazy uh, French soldier. Maybe he was a dual citizen. We don't know, but completely insane. Um, so we, there, there is a, a major French contingent uh, fighting in Gaza as well. How many of these are embedded special forces? How many of these are soldiers of fortune? Uh, and how many of these are you know, dual Israeli citizens? Well, I think this is mainly dual citizens. Uh, I, I doubt that uh, just a normal French person uh, in, in its right mind would want to be part of this conflict, even though it 
they have political views or maybe even religious views that would support maybe a presence there. But uh, again, you, you need people that, that have some kind of experience in uh, Israeli equipment, people that have experience in military, people that have been fighting at least in previous war, like in Iraq or Afghanistan. So there's are people that might have come out of, you know, NATO operations. They no longer work for NATO, but they have dual citizenship with uh, with Israel. That would be my, my best guess. And uh, as you rightly say, so there was a viral video that came out with this French uh, speaking dude that basically talks about you know, going into Gaza with his tanks and, you know, and he wants to massacre all the Gazans, you know. So uh, it, it looks pretty bad, of course. And uh, th th these are obviously people that, that have trainings. I mean, you can see the complexity of the tank. I think the video shows even the inside of the tank. It's a lot of electronics on board. These are not just like some kind of a cowboys, although they act like one. These are people that have trained, that have received training in Israel that are familiar with the equipments and they are capable of, uh, you know, maneuvering tanks and going into, uh, going operational with it. So uh, we can only uh, assume that these are people that have uh, been involved in military, previous military experience, if it's not for the IDF, at least for some, uh, some operation, NATO operations in countries like Iraq uh, uh, and, and Afghanistan. And Ukraine, and Ukraine as well. And it's quite course, conceivable, yeah, isn't course, it? There's yeah. a rotation, right? Possibly. Yes, this rotation, perhaps the money is better. <laughs> There's many, you mm. know, mercenaries at the end of the day. It's all about money. So it's mainly about money. It's really about uh, the offer, the equipment you're going to be working with, the conditions. And uh, yeah, this is things that you negotiate. And uh, uh, these people have the, the ability and the network to do that. Now, this network exists in Belgium uh, a lot. You have a lot of, uh, of these networks as well in Italy. Uh, you get small network in France as well with various organizations, which are actually considered terrorist organization in the United States, but they operate on French soil legally, uh, which are known to have paramilitaries on board as well. So, as I said, dual citizenship here seems to be uh, the way forward uh, as far as uh, them being able to fight uh, with different uh, uh, kind of flag, if you will, although it's illegal. Uh, and that's why I've always been promoting uh, the cancellation of dual citizenship because it creates too much conflict of interest and it challenges basically the law itself, you know. Uh, so that's my problem. And as I say, we have pictures of many others. The tank was one of them, but there's many other pictures, trust me, and also Ukrainian as well and other countries, Belgians. Uh, a lot of intelligence has been kind of gathered around these mercenaries and these paramilitary organizations and the networks that facilitate their coming into uh, the Gaza border uh, to allow them to take part into this fight or, I would say, into this genocide. Well, I think other people are saying the same thing, Freddie. Uh, this situation is deteriorating still um, in Gaza. We saw the incursions on the refugee camp, Khan Yunus. That's in southern Gaza. So the Israelis are moving in on all areas of the Gaza Strip. So all of the narrative that we saw, uh, you know, was being said in the last couple of months, like, oh, we just want to, you know, neutralize uh, Hamas and the tunnels. 
uh, in the north, and then people need to leave their homes and go to the south, and then they go and bomb the south. So, and indeed, targeting uh, Palestinian people as they flee, um, targeting as they're in transit. So, I mean, this is just an unbelievable situation. We're seeing some of the worst casualties in the conflict, uh, in the genocide in the last week. Uh, if you look at the day-to-day -day tally in terms of those killed, injured, and maimed, it's just unbelievable that they haven't been able to hit the brakes yet on this. And we don't see anybody coming forth, uh, any European countries really, not in a strong manner, coming forth and just, you know, doing something extreme uh, to leverage, demand a ceasefire, grandstand at the European Parliament or anything. The only country so far, Freddie, has been Yemen, actually. Uh, that's really stepped up and made a big statement. Isn't that strange, Freddie? The poorest country in the Middle East is the only one that has done anything to not just stand up to Israel, but the United States and all of its allies at the same time. It's pretty extraordinary, Freddie. Yeah, they, they, I mean, they, they really kind of shocked everyone around the world. You know, their, their absolute 100% commitment to Palestine and to the Gaza coast and, and fighting basically the, the Zionist regime. Uh, in Israel, seems to not be interested in, in getting giving any uh, any kind of a you know uh, peace time for for the civilians to uh, to be able to receive humanitarian aid. I think this is really where people are hurting. You know, the people can understand to a certain extent the the fight, the revenge, uh, and uh, the idea of taking uh, uh, taking out uh, uh, Hamas, if you will. What is military or politically speaking, uh, but more and more, you know, when for those that have looked into this conflict and analyzed really the ultimate goal for the IDF and for the Israeli government and the war cabinet, which is basically to uh, uh, to get rid of the Hamas mainly and to free the, the hostages that are still in Gaza. Well, when you really analyze both of these goals, nothing shows clearly that what they're doing is going to eradicate after 100 days plus. Uh, the Hamas, the Hamas seems to be well uh, uh, organized, well equipped, well uh, um, prepared for this uh, offensive and for the long run. And on the other side, uh, I think uh, the IDF operations have endangered tremendously the hostages. And uh, we can see today the, uh, the hostages' families are, are really taking it. We saw it two days or a few days ago going uh, into a, a bodging into a Knesset meeting and uh, really uh, telling them that, you know, that uh, uh, that something needs to be done. You know, this is really, uh, people are asking for elections as well to be organized earlier. There's so many, many things that are happening in Israel and we only get a glimpse of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of more probably is happening that we are not aware of. But the point that I was trying to make, Patrice, to, uh, to, to close that, that chapter is that I think the ultimate goal from the Israeli war cabinet is actually to make Gaza unhabitable. That is, for me, the only goal that is there on the map. And I think that's what the Houthis are really concerned about, as well as the Hezbollah, Iran, and anybody that is part of the acts of resistance, or even any European Westerners that are looking into this conflict and looking at it and say, this cannot be about Hamas. This is no longer about the hostage. I mean, Max Blumenthal, other, you know, that have mm -hmm. looked into this conflict for a very long time, so coming up now and and many people are saying that, you know, the, uh, the Hannibal Doctrine was not just on the 7th of October, but this is something that has 
been basically uh, at uh, uh, really at uh, every single corner of this military operation. And the hostages really are just casualties at this moment in time. They're just going to be sacrificed. Uh, nothing shows anything different than the Hannibal doctrines in the way this uh, operation, military operation from the IDF has been conducted. So this is the destruction of the street, basically make it inhabitable, unhabitable, sorry, and making sure that at the end, uh, the, the global community would have to be involved in with the Palestinians, because if they have no home to go back to, if there's not no state, Palestinian state that can be set, what, what's going to happen for the people? They've lost their home. They lost many of their members of their family. There's no more food. There's no more water. There's no more fuel coming into. There's hundreds of trucks uh, waiting at the Rafa borders. And yet uh, we're told that this is about Hamas. I think it's quite clear today we can take that as a, a certainty that this war is really about ridding not only the street, but I think uh, the uh, occupied Palestinian territory of its Palestinians. No, that's that's certainly what a lot of people are saying as well, Freddie. Uh, very keen observations there about the situation, the increasingly deteriorating situation right now. The human, the humanitarian situation, folks. Uh, listen, uh, the the ramifications, the, the the backlash of aid being kept from going into this area, medical supplies, hospitals being blown up. All of these things are going to culminate into some serious excess deaths. Okay, so those of you who followed the COVID and the vaccine mandate Faragos and you were fixated on the statistic of excess deaths, well, you're going to see some excess deaths, unfortunately, in Gaza. So one hopes that those who are concerned with those lives will also be concerned with these lives as well. That's what we're asking. Freddie Ponton, I want to thank you for coming on to the program this week on TNT, Today's News Talk. As usual, your analysis and insights are most valued. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Patrick. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. And again, check out Freddie's archive up at 21stCenturyWire.com. Get educated on the stories that he's following. We also have all his interviews archived uh, on the website as well. So you can see all of Freddie's work uh, over the last couple of years. And there's a lot there to go through. Look, right now, let's take a break with the network. And when we come back, we will try to connect our intrepid correspondent for some reactions on these. Also, breaking updates and his thoughts about the next hour's interview with our special guest, Miko Pellet is going to be joining us in the second hour. Basil Valentine will connect with him in just a moment. I'm Patrick Kenningson, your host. This is TNT, today's news talk. We'll be right back. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. 
One scorching heat wave will leave me powerless to cool my insulin. When the storm rolls in, my time to find a pet-friendly evacuation center will have run out. <laughs> I'm relying on luck, but who knows if it'll be on my side. When it comes to disasters and emergencies, it's not a matter of if, but when. Take control. One, assess your needs. Two, make a plan. Three, engage your support network. Let's prepare so we all have a better story to tell. Political commentator and investigative journalist, you're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back, folks. Welcome back to this live broadcast. We're still in the first hour here at TNT. Today's News Talk is the Patrick Henningsen Show live and direct every two hours, Monday to Friday at the moment, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 till 6 p.m. UK time and everything else in between. I want to welcome on to the program right now our intrepid correspondent this week, Basil Valentine, who is on the move, on the hoof. We've got him on the live link right now. Uh, Basil, uh, we've got an exciting segment coming up in the next hour with a very special guest, Miko Pellet. Uh, an activist, Israeli-American activist, uh, peace advocate, a great author, uh, fantastic uh, person, really, in terms of this conversation regarding the Middle East and Palestine and Israel. So we are looking forward to that. Uh, I will say, Basil, he was just on the Piers Morgan show a few minutes ago uh, live, which you can't watch here because it's blocked uh, on the regional blocking on YouTube. But um, anyway, some people with VPNs uh, were watching it and found it very interesting. Uh, but that's something to look forward to in the next hour, Basil. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It was thrilled to get me joining us on today's news talk. And he will get a much better hearing than he did given very little time himself or his position on the important issues. So uh, this is where we score, Patrick. We let our guests talk without interrupting them and allowing them to put their perspective forward. Yeah, so there's not going to be any, do you condemn Hamas, as Piers Morgan does right. yeah. to all of his guests, put, pushes them into a corner and browbeats them to deny this or condemn that, or that's basically, that's journalism, we're told. That's like mainstream journalism. So that's the that's the gold standard, Basil. Yeah, I mean, his program's also very one-sided, period. It's just generally biased program, shall we say. Whereas here on today's News Talk, we like to get at the facts. And the latest facts doing the round on social media uh, after its airing last night on ITV News, independent television here in the UK, is the murder of uh, a man in Gaza who was waving a white flag. I don't know if you've seen this, but ITV cameras captured the moment uh, somebody was sniped, for, you know, waving a white flag. Um, on top of that, we've also seen uh, more physicians being sniped. Um, people who have no connection to Hamas, nothing to do with Hamas. We've also seen the uh, latest footage of people being buried alive by bulldozers, which prompts one to ask the question, if there are any atrocities at all that uh, the UK government and US are willing to condemn. We know that their overall position is supportive of Israel. But why do we not hear ringing condemnation of these absolutely heinous war crimes? 
And also, of course, is the ICJ going to be taking them into account when they make their interim verdict, which is expected tomorrow? Well, I think I think there's just more uh, paper for the file, really. I mean, the, the case just keeps getting fatter and fatter. This is going to be litigated for years. So uh, the, the ICJ, all indications are, anyway, we speak to some of our previous guests about it, uh, and they are intimating to us that they're expecting uh, a guilty verdict in the interim decision. In other words, uh, that uh, th- there should be a cease and desist, uh, and they're going to recommend a ceasefire in Gaza, whether they can enforce that or not is another issue but i think that uh that official condemnation at least in the interim basil is coming down the pipeline very very soon could be by friday we're told uh or it may be the latest uh on the weekend or monday so that's coming and that's going to bring another sort of wave uh to this conversation uh that's already looking more and more grim that was just a most incredible thing to see an itv film crew basil filming talking to these very people and as soon as they move away then the israeli snipers move in start picking them off i mean how disgusting and how barbaric are these scenes but we're getting used to them sadly i've lost count of how many things i've seen like this uh even in the recent weeks basil and uh, on top of that i don't know if you've seen as well it's widely available on x uh, scenes of israeli protesters at the crossing to gaza preventing aid trucks from entering gaza so yep. you know doing their level best to stop food arriving for the starving uh, the UN estimate at least half a million people are in imminent danger of famine, if not there already. Um, and uh, yet the Israeli public want to stop aid reaching them. Now, even the Americans and the UK government say we urgently need to get more humanitarian aid into Gaza, even if in their twisted minds, they think that that can be accompanied by, is accompanied by continuous bombing raids. Absolutely bizarre. Here, have a scrap of bread and uh, now you can die when it explodes. So, but uh, again, are we going to hear condemnation of attempts by members of the Israeli public to prevent aid reaching Gaza. Where is the outrage? Will no you see outrage. It on MSNBC? No outrage, Basil. No, the only outrage. outrage on X, of course, there is. No, but, no. You know. the, the only outrage uh, that I'm seeing from the uh, you know mainstream crowd uh, and you know from the great and the good and the chattering classes seems to be outrage against political cartoonist Bob Moran uh, in the UK uh, yeah. for his his latest cartoon. I mean, they they can muster up some outrage for that for a cartoon that they're claiming is anti-semitic uh but no outrage for an actual ongoing genocide what do you make of that well this is it i mean uh, whatever one thinks of bob moran's cartoon it's just a cartoon he hasn't hurt anybody he hasn't killed anybody but we're in this bizarro world where memes illustrations words uh, are considered more harmful than blowing people to smithereens or smart, starving them to death. It's absolutely bizarre. 
no, it is. It is really beyond the pale. Unbelievable situation uh, that we're seeing there. Basil Valentine, we're going to break well, uh, here we, at the top of the hour uh, in sure, a moment. We've, we've just got to ask ourselves very quickly, will the U.S. and the U.K. abide by the ICJ decision? That's the key thing. You know, John Kirby saying every chance he gets that uh, the South African case is meritless. Will uh, so-called Western powers accept the verdict from the ICJ? and implement it accordingly. It's a crucial test. Yeah, and uh, it's very likely it's going to make its way through the UN Security Council, and if it gets vetoed there by the U.S., which it will, uh, it will then be kicked uh, likely into the UN General Assembly, where it can't be vetoed, uh, and which could trigger a number of other things. We'll report more on that after the story breaks to the next level on Friday. We'll bring on the experts on Friday and Monday uh, to talk about the ICJ decision, what comes next. Don't you worry about that. Basil Valentine, thank you for joining us this week on TNT, today's news talk. Thank you, Patrick. Very much looking forward to hearing Mika in the next hour. Uh, we are too. Miko Pellet, very special guest coming up in hour number two. We're looking forward to that discussion. It's going to be one really that's going to get right deep into the issues and looking at the history, the context of this conflict and what is the future of Palestine, of this region? What is the future of Israel? What is the future of Western relations in the region? We'll talk about all that and more. Fantastic guest, Miko Pell. Thank you, Basil Valentine and Freddie Ponton. Hour number one, TNT, today's news talk. I'm Patrick Kenningson. Stick around. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. We'll be back just after that. Mm-hmm.